0: From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're gonna try and sum up some of the big themes that we've been chewing over for the past three months or more. I'll also be asking our panel to make some predictions about the things that we still don't know the answers to, including who is finally going to be the Republican Party's nominee for president. My special guest is Paul Cartledge, author of the epic new book, Democracy Alive, which takes the story of democratic politics back to its origins in ancient Greece. He tells me how far we've come from what democracy once meant.
1: We get things exactly the wrong way round. In other words, a referendum is a secondary thought to possibly solve a problem that normal politics cannot solve, whereas for the ancient Athenians, a referendum-style decision was normal politics. And why some 21st-century figures are instantly recognisable from the distant past. Trump has certain, I think, <laughs> features in common with Aristophanes' sausage seller. That's a low type of huckster making a living by selling sausages in the
0: Agaran. Stay tuned for that and a whole lot more. First, I'm joined by a full house of regular panellists, Helen Thompson, Finn Livesey, Erin Rapport, and welcome back to Chris Brook. We're going to come to your predictions at the end, and I am going to ask you to say what you think is going to happen. But before that, it would be good to take stock of where we've reached after three months of chatting about politics and democracy. One thing that's been said quite a few times recently by commentators on the American election is that the Chinese are watching with a mixture of horror and glee, horror at the nativism, the blame the rest of the world, the pulling up the drawbridge politics, but glee because it shows democracy doesn't work, because America may end up being governed by an idiot. And that's the traditional complaint against democracy, that it doesn't have a safety valve and that the people may turn out to be very foolish. And we're going to be talking to Paul Cartledge a bit later about this long standing criticism of democracy that goes back to ancient Athens. But Helen, starting with you, because I think once or twice I've heard you express some scepticism about whether those of us who believe democracy is the way that the world ought to be governed are being a little naive about its long-term durability. Have you had any moments over the past few months where you've thought this isn't just a robust example of democracy in action, it's a really bad advertisement for democracy?
2: I don't think it's so much a question about whether it's a really bad advertisement for democracy, though it is a really bad advertisement for democracy. It's more a question of whether democracy is facing a set of problems or set of predicaments, perhaps might be a better way of putting it, that it is going to be able to deal with. And I think there are some quite good reasons to wonder whether actually democracy isn't at a moment in which it's facing a set of problems, a set of predicaments, in which it is not going to be able to pull something out of the hat. I think you can see that in terms of the economic problems that the Western economies face. You can see that in terms of the pretty much near collapse of faith of voters, or sections of voters anyway, in the established... Political class, and you can see it in the fact that there seems to be a fairly pervasive loss of faith in the future.
0: So, what does not being able to pull something out of the hat look like? It doesn't presumably look like a military coup.
2: I don't think it looks like a military coup, but I think if you look at it in terms of crisis, you might say, look, we're past the event horizon in the sense that things that are sucking us into this crisis, the gravitational pull, have reached a point from which there isn't going to be any escape.
0: Chris, you've been away for a month thinking, writing, studying. Do you feel that we're beyond the event horizon? Do you have a sense that democracy is in uncharted waters at the moment, electoral Western democracy?
3: As I get older, I get more and more pessimistic about everything. So I'm a pessimist. But it still looks to me as if it's a story of gradual decline and decay, rather than anything that's heading for sudden collapse. Even if we turn out to get President Trump, we probably won't, but we might. There's still a certain amount of American constitutional machinery that can restrain executive power. I don't think we'll get nuclear Armageddon. And it's not obvious that what would come after Trump would be worse. So I think the the medium-term prognosis isn't good. And I do think that big problems are building up over the longer run. Aaron, you're our H-bomb correspondent. <laughs>
0: We're not probably facing Armageddon, I think, I hope. We probably all agree on that, even with President Trump. But give us the upside on this, if you can. Give us some American optimism.
4: I'll give you optimism. And ironically, my optimism comes from the fact that I am generally a pessimist. So I generally have low expectations. So my optimistic take goes something like this. Democracy is a myth. We've never had democracy anywhere in the world, including America. We've always had what Robert Dahl, my... Second favorite doll after Rolled Doll called Polyarchy which is literally multiple factions competing for rule. And the only question in most countries is how many factions do you have competing and what percentage of the population or the selectorate or electorate, uh, depending on what term you want to use, are there, right? Joseph Schumpeter talked about this, right? Democracy is not the expression of the will of the people. It's a competition amongst elites that the people roughly ratify. And that has been the case throughout US history. We're actually at probably the most democratic point we've ever been in U.S. history, right? If you look at the antebellum years where you had entire class of people that were considered property and couldn't vote at all, even though for purposes of Southern representation, they were counted as three fifths of people. So we have to bear in mind historically that democracy is rare the world has actually gotten more democratic but at the same time democracy and government in general is usually about elite competition with the general populace participating as much as they can given the daily whirly-burly of their lives they they're not like us they don't it's not their job to focus on politics they can be rationally irrational and not pay that much attention part of the problem now where people are really down on democracy and saying oh my goodness it's just elites, it's just rich people who control the process, is they kind of overestimate to the you know the degree that there used to be some golden era where this was not the case. So my optimistic take is, yeah, democracy's not doing so hot, but again, compared to the baseline, right, we're not really that far off into some dystopian environment. So,
0: so Finbar, the problem with democracy, and this is what it tends to come down to, is with the people, <laughs> because the people are confused about what it can deliver and expectations are out of kilter and as Aaron was saying they people at the moment particularly seem to dislike the kind of deal making and compromise involved in politics we've talked about it before Ted Cruz is a candidate running for presidency of the United States on the slogan I will never do a deal with anyone which is an odd slogan for any politician to stand on what's the answer then it's because the, the sort of generic hand wringing solution is people need to be better informed. Larry Summers wrote a piece a couple of days ago saying, really, the solution to people's anger about globalization is they need to be better informed about how it's good for them.
5: That doesn't work. I like the way this podcast always gives me the easy questions right at the end. So what's the solution? And the problem, as Aaron was saying, is that there are a lot of promises that have been made about democracy, which are coming home to roost, and that people will be more engaged, people will be more involved. I think it's not that people need to be better informed. People are desperately trying to get on with their lives and trying to make ends meet in the middle of the recovery from an awful financial crisis and the likelihood of a recession coming over the hill in the next two to three years in most of the developed economies as well. The solution personally for me is to stop making promises that democracy can't fulfill. And that's about the realism of the actors within the political process. And that's something which isn't likely to happen given the nature of how it's become almost the X factor for trying to get into positions position such as the presidency. So the tensioning here is off. We have a process which has become about entertainment, but we need a process which is about realism and those two things aren't gonna to go together. The other part of this is the, the tension between the super state and the idea of power and superpowers in America as a great order versus the fragmentation and the devolution that's happening across many, many states. The UK being the prime example after the Scottish referendum and the exit from the EU. The, so, p- the possible exit from possible, the EU. Excuse me, apologies And Am going miss- to come on to your book. prediction but you've already given us no, yours. Maybe. Um, <laughs> there is potential to save some of this process if people want to operate in smaller units and that's one potential future in which large states become ungovernable in this manner. They're governable in other manners, but they may not be the way in which we want to go.
0: Because Helen, that is definitely one of the things that we're seeing here. If if the two things we've been talking about in this podcast, the American elections and the EU referendum, they are about very large political units struggling to accommodate the range of popular discontents that they contain. We'll come on to the EU a bit later. But in the case of the United States, is that actually what we're seeing here? It's, it's a problem of scale that 21st century politics doesn't really work. And and it is striking, as we've gone through the primary process, just how different the responses are in different states to the candidates, in a sense, just how fragmented this is, not just fragmented red states, blue states, Democrats, Republicans, but really, really different perspectives coming out of different parts of the United States. And it is hard to see how this slightly cumbersome electoral process is meant to pull these diverse views together so that you've got the elites competing at the top, but then you've got this incredible fracturing of popular discontent at the bottom. Is this, a, is this a scale problem?
2: It is a scale problem, but I think it's also wrong to think that in some sense that the the problem lies with the expectation that voters have of what democratic politics can do in the face of that fragmentation. We've got to separate out the discontent that is in part come, as Erin has said, from a sort of inflated expectations about what democracy can do. But it's also come because people have seen more clearly than they've probably seen at any time in democracy's history, the relationship between money and the political class. And they don't like it very much. And the fact that the way in which the international economy in particular is constructed allows the political class, or at least the successful part of the political class, to materially benefit from democratic politics in the way that they do, is, I think, a, a quite singular problem for democratic politics at the moment. And then on top of that, you've got the problem that the elites don't really know how to solve a set of problems or a set of predicaments, as I, as I called them earlier, that are facing them in policy terms, whether that's in terms of what to do in the Middle East, what to do about climate change, how to get economies to run again without having them on monetary steroids. And that there aren't any easy answers to this. And that seems to me that the sense of the practical problems that democracy faces actually at the core of what's happening at the moment.
0: Chris democracy is meant to be the system of rule that values equality. That's one of the values that underpins it, at least political equality, but we are living in an age of increasingly visible economic inequality. And is that the the collision? is that the fault line that lies at the heart of this, that what's really Generating most of the discontent is the mismatch between the promise of equality that democracy has traditionally meant to be founded on, and the evidence of inequality that's all around us.
3: I think that's right. And I think a lot of that goes into explaining the fuss surrounding Thomas Piketty's book a couple of years ago, that was a large scale meditation on the the tension between a story about political democracy premised on equality and the reality of an economic system that, when it's functioning normally, generates ever-increasing amounts of inequality. But that is a very old story. If you go right back through the 19th century, if you go right back into the 18th century, this is what the most interesting analysts of politics are always saying. Karl Marx's story is probably the best known. But if you go back into the 18th century and look at what writers like Rousseau and other figures from the Enlightenment are interested in, it's this idea that political communities need to be held together in certain kinds of ways. Citizens need to have things in common. They need to share certain identities. They need to share certain projects. And you can tell different stories about commerce. You can tell the integrating story about how markets function as a kind of sociability and as a kind of way in which people can... Become affluent together. But there's always been, ever since the emergence of market society, people who are very conscious of the ways in which these create different antagonistic interest groups and produce situations in which what divides people gets in the way of what's bringing them together. What we're seeing now isn't new, but it is a story where the theme continues and it gets more serious and more troublesome over time. And as the scale of global politics gets larger, and the more countries that are running regimes of this kind get larger, the problems become more and more palpable, and more and more intractable. Aaron, democratic politics is fairly insular
0: on the whole. Democratic publics tend to look inwards and worry about their own problems. But if you take a step back, it's all relative. I mean, our politics doesn't look great, but I'd rather live here than in Putin's Russia. I'd probably rather live here than in most places in the world. And I imagine most Americans would still given the choice if this was not an election about who do you want to be governed by? But how do you want to be governed? They would presumably still pick their system over the alternatives. I mean, we're not living in an age and even if you go back 30 or 40 years, uh, maybe not in America so much, but certainly in Europe, there were people seriously proposing radical alternatives to democracy on the left. And then you go back to the 1930s, and certainly on the right, is your sense of it that Americans have lost faith in their politicians, but they haven't lost faith in their political system yet?
4: That is certainly my sense. One of the ways I can maybe validate this is there's this one poll question that gets asked repeatedly over and over again. It's a foreign policy question, which is kind of ironic because you're just asking about insular democracy, but it's, should America take a leading role in the world? And. Over the years, regardless of whether you know the United States is bogged down in war somewhere, or the economy has turned to crap or what, what have you, overwhelmingly throughout the post-war era, Americans have said, yes, that has been the answer to that question. And the reason that I think that reflects something about Americans' attitudes towards their domestic political system is because it goes back to this idea of American exceptionalism, right? That there is something about the United States that is different from the rest of the world, that we are a beacon on a hill top or we have some missionary objective in the world to spread democratic values it's reflected in this constant kind of attitude about american leadership but what happens is people get very disenchanted with the day-to-day concrete nitty-gritty business of running a country and, and seeing how the sausage gets made so to speak i kind of compare this to when you ask people what's the greatest joy in your life they will often say my children and then when you ask them what is your least favorite thing to do during the day? It'll say parenting, right? Uh, so it's this kind of dilemma, right? In the abstract, America is great and the democratic system is great and we're this exceptionalist country, but in the concrete day-to-day things, boy, you know, you want to do a, a Jerry Lewis kind of, you know, it's, it's not nearly as, as pretty.
0: Fimba, I promise I'll come to you first next time because I keep coming to you last to sum up the fate of the Western world. Easy. <laughs> Do you sense outside of America, in Europe, that people are, because we are seeing not just a fracturing of public opinion in Europe, but the beginnings of the rise of some radical alternative political parties on the left and on the right, around the fringes of Europe, European politicians are looking beyond the West to Russia, some of them to China, some of them for future alliances. Is there any sense that European publics might be on the cusp of a loss of faith in their traditional democratic institutions to the extent that they're willing to countenance alternatives. I don't think Putinism is going to win elections in many places, although Hungary might be an exception. But do you have any sense, any fear that in Europe, Democracy is possibly going to lose out to rival systems of government. I don't. You're sh- shaking your head. Well, like I'm, sh- is, I'm like shaking my head like I've gone mad. am <laughs> shaking fine. my head. It's the end of the podcast. <laughs> it's the end of the podcast.
5: I'm shaking my head because I think it's almost the same answer again. That people are losing faith in particular leaders or in particular politicians, rather than in the system, and that they are seeing an opportunity to use the system. I mean, the the rise of the right and the far right in France is people expressing their opinion as to who they want to have lead them and they're using the system they're not going outside the system they're working within the system is there pressure on democracy yes obviously is there as you say a lean to other strategic partners yes But I don't think that lean is about taking on any of the political architecture. I think it's much more about seeing who they think has influence in the world and what's going to happen in the future. So I don't look at you as if you're mad because it's a bad question. I think it's a question which highlights this contrast between what the system can or can't do, what the people within the system are promising can happen, and what the people then see happening at the end of the day. At this point, I think I'm going to tell my Seamus
0: Milne story. Seamus Milne, who's Jeremy Corbyn's Director of Communications. A couple of years ago, he spoke at the Cambridge Literary Festival, and I was doing the Q&A. I was chairing his session, and he was talking about everything that was wrong with Western democracy. And he had a Cambridge audience, and Cambridge is quite a Corbynish town. And they were with him every step of the way as he complained about the bankers, and he claimed about special interests, and he claimed about the ways in which our democracy isn't really democratic, complained a lot. And the audience were nodding along, and a lot of what he said rang true for everyone, including me. And then a nervous person at the back put up his hand and said, "Mr. Milne, you said a lot about what's wrong with our system and our economy, but how could we do it differently?" And he said, "Well, we could run ours a bit more like the Chinese run theirs." At which point he lost the room. <laughs> uh, it was a great moment. It was like a Bateman cartoon—those cartoons where suddenly someone says something and everyone goes, their mouths drop open. But it's a sign of just how big the gulf is between peoples general discontent with democratic politics and their appetite for the alternatives. So you're looking at me like I'm mad, that was Seamus Milne who said that, but it, it's, it's a sign I think of just how big the gulf is actually between the radical alternatives and the public appetite for change.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why we're all coming back to the same position, which is when you say, is this a massive threat to the system? Yes, but is there an alternative that we can readily put our hand on? No, we are in some ways stuck with a system that we don't know how to change from. We can tweak, we can try and change the nature of the people who go into politics, we can try and change some of the nature of the discourse, but we don't have a ready-made alternative right now. Thanks to Helen, Aaron, Finbar
0: and Chris. Predictions to come later on. Before we talk about ancient Greece, Galen Druk went back to Brooklyn to ask some people there whether the past few months have challenged their faith in democratic politics.
2: Um, right now, I think it's just kind of the rat race system. I don't know, it seems like politics have turned into um, a media debacle.
4: And like, are people satisfied?
2: I mean, people I don't, don't seem to be satisfied. I mean, I mean, all,
6: everyone just does this argue about everything and nothing ever seems to get done. Everyone just seems to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. Everyone looks at other forms of government and thinks that they're better, but I don't know if they are better or if, you know. Or if government itself is just inherently just doesn't work.
2: I mean if you ask anyone, I would be like considered a socialist. Like I believe that we should all have uh healthcare, that we should all go to school for free. But I think that generally those are uh seen as given rights, but that doesn't necessarily happen in a democratic society, as we've seen.
4: What do you mean <laughs> that that doesn't necessarily happen in a democratic society?
2: Um, I don't know. I I guess if that's something that we inherent thought was good that we would have kind of voted it in already
4: so what do you think of the state of american democracy uh right now it's unfortunate but we have people in positions of power that really aren't doing right by the the american people they're doing right by people who fund their campaigns a la citizens united it's really important one man one vote notice this guy you look at these buildings there's some really tall buildings around here some really rich people but guess what they only have one vote All these people here in Washington Square Park we're at right now, they have the same amount of votes. I think this whole country and its entire political process hinges on this one stupid, stupid thing called Citizens United.
6: Do you think uh, American democracy works? Uh, American democracy? I don't, I don't know. Um, no. No. Why not? Because it's in America and everything in America is like corrupt, you know? To a sense, yeah, American democracy work, compared to like North Korea. Okay, but, uh, okay, so be like a little specific. Do you feel like you have a voice in the political process? I feel like we have a voice, but I feel like it's not on a megaphone. I feel like we got a voice, but we got like, we got like strep throat, you know, from the government. So yes, we got a voice. Yes, it's heard, but it's not, um, what, applied? Um, you know, just like how voters go out and vote, whatever. The systems are rigged, the delegates and all that stuff. We got a voice, but at the same time, it's still a hand that comes over our mouth. Like, if we keep talking, it's like, oh, can't talk no more. Are you optimistic about the future of the country? <laughs> uh, I would like to be optimistic, man. I mean, you know, I'm a natural optimistic guy. But, um, you know... the optimism can easily fade away. That's how I feel.
2: I'm not excited about the future. I'm in the process of moving to Africa. No, that's a lie, but no, I mean, that's how I feel. Same thing. I just think it's all, just all bad. It's too many strings, too many puppets
6: going, depending on who gets elected, then I'll talk some more.
4: (laughs) Wait, so what uh, what if, what if Donald Trump gets elected?
1: I'm out, no, <laughs> I don't know, that's scary. But I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know enough to, all I know is that he says some crazy things out of his mouth and I'm
4: nervous.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Thank you to Galen for his reporting from New York. Paul Cartledge is Emeritus Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge University and the author of many books about ancient Greece. The most recent one is Democracy Alive, published last month, which explores what democracy meant to the Athenians and what it might still mean for us today. I began by asking him to explain what made ancient Athenian democracy
1: different. Let's um, get some facts straight. There was no such thing as ancient Athenian democracy. What I mean by that is that there were lots of different versions of democracy in the ancient Greek world. And the ancient Athenians themselves had at least three, possibly four. So demos can mean either, the people as a whole. And famously, uh, at Gettysburg, Lincoln declared that American democracy in 1863 was government of the people, by the people, for the people, but which people precisely? Were black slaves part of the people? Obviously not. That's, if you like, the anodyne version of what ancient Greek demokratia, the Greek word, meant. It was something that a lot of people could buy into and feel comfortable with, but Suppose you're a member of what we today would call an elite, that is rich and well-born, well-educated, with a pedigree. Maybe even going back to a hero or a god. Remember that the gods and the humans, they, they look alike. Well, suppose you're one of those few, then you probably hate the notion that the majority of a particular group of people is always going to outnumber you and any issue on which they might think they have a common interest, for example the grain supply, which they have a direct interest in it being relatively cheap, frequent and available, then they're going to gang up, as it were, on you. And you are one of the elite, you see yourself as superior to any member of the masses well the other meaning of demos is masses and the masses are poor and so the best analyst of ancient um, politics in general is of course aristotle aristotle wanting to sort out what essentially different between democratic any version and he was very insistent there were lots of different versions of democratia and of oligarchia what differentiated them was that democracy was the rule of the poor and oligarchy, the rule of the rich. And he said, even if by some extraordinary empirical chance, the rich should be the majority, I'd still call it oligarchy, because it's essentially the rule of the rich. So if Lincoln had
0: said government of the poor, by the poor, for the poor, we would have a completely
1: different sense of the kind of politics that he was talking about and to be fair to Lincoln, the American process had initially uh, thrown up not the word democracy, but uh, republic. And so that's only a secondary phenomenon, epiphenomenon, actually, to call it democracy. And we'll come on in a bit to how ancient and modern democracy
0: might be different. But to go back to that idea that it is very much government by, of and for the poor, what were some of the implications for how it actually worked in practice in Athens?
1: In Athens specifically, the essential point, we might call it government by mass meeting, but mass meeting aided crucially by a permanent steering committee. We call it the council in Greek bouli, word for to advise. And the council was recruited by the use of the lot and this is absolutely fundamental difference between modern notions of how officials should be selected and how they should therefore perform their function. The lottery implies that in principle anybody qualified as long as you were a citizen in good standing, you'd been born to the correct parents, you'd been entered on the local, as it were, parish register, and therefore you were entitled to attend the Assembly or to make a speech in the Assembly or to sit on the Council. They used the lot to select the Council because that encouraged the majority, the greatest number of possible applicants, to throw their hat in the ring, as it were. It was also deemed to be the fairest system because it didn't privilege those factors which a democrat thought were anti-democratic, and I mean in particular birth and wealth regardless of height and beauty you know charisma charisma all those other factors so the assembly doesn't turn up naively blind nor are its decisions just sort of automatically implemented there's a complex procedure of administration through the council but how did the demos exercise its kratos in athens well in two ways one through mass meeting and to our way of thinking it's almost unbelievable But every nine days, by 350 BC, every nine days there was an assembly meeting at which um, the equivalent of a referendum decision, um, should we make an alliance with state X or should we pull out of an alliance with state Y? would be thrown open to the people. The Herald stands up and says, does anybody wish to speak? Well, actually, very few people would speak. I mean, it takes a lot of courage as well as skill to address in the open air 6,000 plus people. But ordinary people chat away in between assembly meetings. They'd know what was on the agenda. It would be posted up actually in writing. It's very interesting how literate the Athenian uh, democracy was. This is part of culture. It's not part of uh, institutions, it's sort of accidental. But it promoted literacy. It depended to some degree on functional literacy among the majority of Athenian citizens. There are always certain items on the agenda, relations with the gods, grain supply, security, and sometimes some management of the state-owned silver mines, which was the fundamental economic basis, so far as the state's ownership of wealth and generation of wealth was concerned.
0: You mentioned the fact that an effect of democracy in Athens was relatively high levels of literacy. But still, the criticism of ancient democracy, both at the time and since, has always been that it puts too much power in the hands of the ignorant, essentially. So not only were these people not experts, but often the fear is they genuinely didn't understand what it was they were doing. And critics of democracy for that reason say that this kind of radical empowering of the mass, the poor, leads to a much greater likelihood that you'll get really bad decisions. What mechanisms do they had in place to guard against that? Or was that a price that defenders of ancient democracy were willing to pay?
1: No, the, the answer is the latter, that um, they considered that a price well worth paying. And yes, they did make mistakes. And at one point, they even voted themselves out of existence, which is extraordinary, by our way of thinking, but they did it democratically. But most of our evidence for ancient democracy, that is to say how functionally efficient it was, or how morally egalitarian and just it was, most of our evidence is negative, because it comes from the elite. Lots so surprisingly. By definition. Yeah, quite. One of the arguments that they make is precisely this, and of course uh, I suppose Plato is the most articulate exponent of the view that the masses are ignorant and politics is a matter of skill. But the masses would take the view that within the decision-making process there are differential functions so relatively few would be either institutionally or personally capable of putting themselves forward to hold the two top offices and these are first the generalship in other words it was not believed that just any Athenian by the use of the lottery should be selected to hold that function and general means both general in our sense on land and admiral uh, Athens was of course crucially dependent on its fleet and some would argue that it's the precisely the development of the fleet which actually empowers the masses because they are the main strike arm, both aggressively and defensively. For example, they protect the grain supply. They also, of course, attack uh, enemies. Um, it's because of that, that the trireme, the, the warship which um, was developed in the sixth and fifth centuries BC, has sometimes been called a, a school or an engine of um, democracy. So the Athenians were people who empowered the masses Even at the cost of, they recognised making mistakes, and they made big mistakes. Some would say the biggest was to go to war in the way they did with the Spartans at the end of the 5th century, and even bigger, of course, to lose. And it's said that they threw away a number of opportunities for making a more or less acceptable peace. They went for broke, and they were broke. When people look at the history of Athenian
0: democracy over its life, which is 200 or so years, um, there are two kinds of stories they can tell about it. One of which is it's remarkable it lasted that long. And there were many mistakes made, but it kept coming back. And some historians of the ancient world identified this as its distinctive characteristic, and maybe it's true of contemporary democracy as well. It had this kind of adaptability. It could make mistakes, and then it could sort of correct for its mistakes. The other view is that, in the end, it ran out of road, and when it was finished, it was finished democracy for more or less 2,000 years. And in your book, you do take the long view, you're looking at the ancient world from the perspective of now. Is Athenian democracy, broadly speaking, a success story, or is it broadly speaking a failure?
1: If you mean by a success just going on together, in other words, not being a failed state, and if you also mean that it delivers the two principal goods, one is a livelihood, the other being a sense of belonging, well, in that twofold sense, the Athenian democracy, or I should say, really, democracies, because it did adapt and then have lost the Peloponnesian War one of the thoughts was well we allowed ourselves to have a system whereby one assembly meeting could make a fantastic difference so we've got to have some way of not altering the fundamentals of the democracy well so what they introduced was a, a sort of twofold system that if there was to be a basic law introduced that changed the nature of the fundamental political system then first you have an assembly vote then it has to be as it were sat in judgment upon by the law courts and the law courts were staffed by people selected by lot on an annual basis. About 20% of the entire population was constantly on call for legal proceedings which might be directly political so in other words one politician against another or in this case the law that had just been passed was on trial and you would have advocates speaking on either side and then a decision made by people they called lawgivers who were a small subset of the total panel of 6,000. So it's a system which has built into it a certain amount of flexibility, a certain amount of fail-safeness. They made terrible mistakes, but for almost 200 years, it functioned well in terms of delivering those two principal goods. And you could say that it didn't die so much as that it was murdered. It was assassinated by what I call an unholy combination of an external power, namely a very powerful monarch- who was conquering all over the place. And his name's Philip, Philip II of Maston. Maston is a place without the polis system of civic citizen self government. So he comes from an autocratic background. And in league with the Athenian upper classes who hated democracy and were prepared to live with being subject to Maston so long as they were now in the driving seat in Athens. That combination proved lethal. The Athenians lost one of the few decisive battles then made a terrible mistake of trying to liberate themselves from their Macedonian overlord by military means, which they failed to do, and therefore they were then crushed again by um, a system which remained demokratia in name. But under Macedonian suzerainty, the so-called demokratia became more of an oligarchy. So the word demokratia persists, but it means more something like republic it means more something like we don't have directly ruling over us a tyrant and they conceived their democracy as anti-tyranny the antithesis of non-responsible autocratic sole rule
0: so there are lots of things that you've just described that suggest analogies with now and also make Athenian democracy sound very, very different from now. So I'm going to go through a series (laughs) of things. I almost don't know where to start. Not least when you think about how it could all ultimately go wrong when we finally lose our battle with the world's tyrants. But to go back to a point that we were were talking about earlier on, which is just the level of commitment and involvement this rule by the masses, including the poor entailed, meeting every nine days, being well informed about the sorts of decisions that were going to be taken. And these were decisions that, as you described them, have clear modern analogies, control of state industry, defence and security, welfare and well-being. One thing that's often said about modern citizens, not just 21st century citizens, but for the last couple of hundred years, is that we're not committed enough to a political life and what that involves to really sustain an ancient-style democracy. It does involve, as it were, leading a political life most of the time. And actually, what we think of as politics, representative democracy, is we franchise out decision-making someone else, and then we chip in when we feel threatened or when we feel engaged. But for most of the time, we want to let someone else do it. Is there any sense in which modern citizens would be able
1: to live up to the standards of commitment, that ancient democracy demands. Ancient democracy was a culture, not just a set of institutions. Our problem today, if I can put it this way, is that we have too much private life. <laughs> Whereas the in the ancient world, because the struggle for existence was much more immediate and because there wasn't that much leisure to go around, there wasn't the sharp separation between what you do to gain a living and what you do with the living that you've gained secondly they were living of course on a very low level of technology so nothing in the way of mass media uh, existed so you had to congregate in public and of course this was the case right up to the early 20th century it's only since the 20s that you can have mass action at a distance the fact that they were uh, members of a community which they identified with was, I think, an absolutely key way in which one expressed oneself as a citizen. It wasn't just doing politics. Politics was life. So do you think that what we call democracy is
0: in these terms genuinely democratic, given the extent to which we expect the vast majority of decisions to be taken, not just on our behalf, but without us actually paying attention, that we only wake up when something is done on our behalf that we really don't like? We, we don't really push, particularly in this context, the poor don't really push their own interests and don't really
1: engage, what they do is react. Well, you touched on there what I would say is the key distinction between any modern democracy and any ancient one in its original signification. That's to say representation. Since the 18th century, when democracy again has been on the agenda, it was never on the agenda practically as direct participatory mass decision making. Partly because people were frightened that meant rule by the poor. But also, simply, I think, the way the world had gone for the last 1500 years. I mean, so. We go for representative democracy and we hope that our representatives act for us in two senses. One, on our behalf, <laughs> but uh, secondly, instead of us. And this is where all ancient democracies in its original signification and any modern one differ hugely. So the founding fathers of the Americas, they abhor the notion of uh, mass democracy, which they saw as mob rule, because the mob was poor. Remember that um, very few people were enfranchised until the late 19th century, or indeed early 20th century in terms of gender. And so the notion that um, ordinary poor people might actually run things is, is anathema. And yet we
0: are today living through a democratic moment where there is a kind of reaction against some ideas of representation, because in this country, we'll come on to America in a second. In this country, we are seeing a series of crucial referendums, which do pose these kinds of questions that, as you said, the Athenians got wrong, these big choices, these moments often swayed by emotion, where people, the people make a decision that have very, very long term consequences, maybe fundamentally change, not just a political, institutional environment, but a culture. As you described it, the Athenians learnt to be actually wary of this. Mm. So there's an irony here, which is that we are a long way from ancient democracy, but we have these little spasms, and a referendum is one, yes. where we say the people must decide. And we're not doing what you described the Athenians would do, which was to have that secondary safety valve, yeah. which is the people must decide. And then let's cho- choose a few of the people at the random to talk it through and see whether the people have made the right decision. Yes. So is, is this referendum moment that we're living through, is it harking back in your mind to earlier notions of democracy or is it a peculiarly modern phenomenon?
1: It's peculiarly modern in my opinion. We get things exactly the wrong way round. In other words, a referendum is a secondary thought to possibly solve a problem that normal politics cannot solve. Whereas for the ancient Athenians, a referendum style decision was normal politics. And one factor I've not yet mentioned, which uh, differentiates any ancient from any modern democracy is party. Unless I'm very much wrong, the referendum on the EU, which we're about to suffer, is due largely to a political manoeuvre by a prime minister who found himself in difficulty within his own party. It's now splitting, as one would have predicted, his own party down the middle. It's also splitting the main opposition party in this country. So in other words, it's doing severe damage to normal, Politics in the British way of doing politics. But, nevertheless, um, I, as a Democrat, I mean, a radical Democrat, that is, I do think ordinary people ought more often to be in a position to actually have a say, a decisive say, not, as one of my distinguished Cambridge colleagues called it, enjoy a Saturnalia every five years. In other words, for one day, the masters and the slaves change places that's when we the people elect our representatives but then have no further control over them directly because we've got parties we've got parliament we've got a cabinet we've got a prime minister all these layers away from ordinary direct Popular control. So I would myself recommend the introduction of referendums as a more normal mode of politics, rather than these quite exceptional situations, especially ones with this absurdly long lead-up time. Too, I was listening very carefully to the podcast last week, and the issue of how far will people make up their minds on the basis of facts. Well, what are the facts? And the ancient Athenians were in the same position. They would not know what, as it were, the facts were or what the outcome would likely be. They were ignorant. But what they learn to do, and this is actually very difficult for us, is to learn whom to trust. So if X speaks up for such and such and makes a particular point, then on balance, one will probably go for that line. Not because one's learned some uh, necessarily decisive new fact, but because the total package which that person is associated with is one that in the past has tended to produce good outcomes but it,
0: and it would be that person it yeah. wouldn't be that person as the representative of a party or right. a it was a very personal form he of politics would have a, and it would be he of yeah quite
1: men only need apply but as I say to speak to actually put forward a program let alone an individual policy that's going to be very difficult and so only a few are skilled enough to do that but interestingly I'm not sure if we've touched on this but the attitude to professionals was distinctly sceptical in the ancient democracy because it was felt that they had some perhaps uh, hidden agendas which uh, you would want to um, know about for example in the law courts if you're uh, on trial for let's say deceiving the people you start out by saying well you see i've never been in this situation before i'm not a professional speaker i'm just an ordinary guy like you so the notion of separation between the expert and the the masses was something which um, democrats were not keen on at all oligarchs thought that was the basis of politics do you think there are other ways that our democracy could be injected
0: with more of what you call this real radical democracy? Yeah. So you said we could have more frequent referendums yeah. and technology makes that possible, but no one's quite worked out how to do that. Yeah. But what about election or selection by lot should there be more randomness in our
1: democracy? Yes I think certainly the allocation of funds could be done at a local level more by that means. Officials again at the local level could more often be selected for example members of a council local Cambridge City Council whatever the use of the lot could certainly be introduced there but I have a more radical proposal which I I mean I only half seriously put it forward but what's going on Uh, well, both in America and indeed in our country, is clashes between individuals who don't actually differ that hugely on policy always, but uh, quite often differ very much in personality. But one way of, what shall we say, lancing a boil or um, getting rid of a huge tension, which is being built up because you have two people who seem to be particularly um, representative of uh, different views, the system of ostracism, which the ancient greeks have now this seems to us very strange aristotle was appalled by it because it meant that somebody could be exiled which is a serious political penalty for 10 years without having committed any offense any crime but the point of it was to get rid of one person whose presence was causing excessive uh, animosity and tension. So I would personally quite like to see this introduced both in the states within the Republican Party. Naming no names. Naming no names. <laughs> well, they will name those names in a moment. And actually, with yes, within the Tory party. <laughs> the,
0: the thought of Boris being yeah. ostracized is a nice idea of someone being hoist by their own petard, yes, given his championing good. of the uh, ancient models of politics. <laughs> Let me, I want to ask you about a couple more things. So one, as you said, your idea of ostracism, which is an attractive one in lots of ways. I want to run my version of how ancient democracy might work by you. Um, again, it's, it's half serious, half not serious. I don't know whether it's serious or not, which is in, in our system, in the, the British con- constituency, first past the post system, if we had none of the above as an option, And so people could tick that box. And then if none of the above won, then all the people who voted for none of the above by voting there had committed themselves to being put in a giant box and one of them would be pulled out at random Mm. and that person would serve. So it has the double effect that it's not just anyone could be chosen by lot, but if you commit yourself to saying, I don't want any of those bastards, you're more or less saying I could do it better. Okay, let's test it. Right. Does that, and you, how does that how does that sound to you as a version of ancient democracy in the modern it world? Does.
1: So long as everybody who votes and ticks the none of the above it doesn't do it frivolously. Well, this would be the test, because the risk is you might get, you might get, get chosen. And um, would they? Ah, but suppose I was wanting to vote none of the above, but didn't feel I would be a good, what, MP, Uh, I might not therefore vote at all, and I think that's um, undesirable. I'm actually one of those who thinks probably there should be a small fine if people don't vote. You won't get these 55%, 60% general election, which I think is atrocious. And that is democratic deficit. And it reflects all kinds of feelings about politics and the, the way the world is and all that sort of thing. But I think that would actually inject a dose of realism into many of our ordinary, especially young people. Although, of course, the countercase case there, maybe it's not a counter case, Australia
0: where that does exist. And if you look at Australian politics for more than about five minutes, you realise <laughs> it's like ours; just a bit grubby. But isn't that party? That's where I would that also is, get. It is absolutely party. It's <laughs> so yeah. Um, finally, let's just touch on America because <clears throat> it's an amazing election season, and we've been talking about it a lot on this podcast. We've spent more time than's good for anyone talking about Donald Trump. So let me ask you a slightly different question, one that we haven't discussed so far, which is: Is he a quintessentially 21st century figure in your mind, or, or are they? A, other analogies from the ancient world to this kind of politician. Because after all, one of the things he quite clearly is doing, though he is himself not poor, is he's found a way to articulate for some of the people who feel not just disadvantaged or disenfranchised, but completely cut out by this representative system. And that's one of the risks of representative democracy is that you can create a whole class of people who feel that they are just not represented at all, and they are often the least advantaged. And Trump has become, not all of them, because some of them have gone Bernie Sanders way, but for many of them, he's become their spokesman. Is Is that a recognizable type from the ancient world, the wealthy man who speaks for the people who say this system's not working for us anymore?
1: It is, in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, in the Athenian democracy, in order to stand for the two top offices, one of which is the generalship, the other of which I now mention is the treasurer of Athena. Office, which means you manage the largest capital funds of the Athenian state. And they're called treasurers of Athena because the money is actually stashed on the Acropolis. And when the Parthenon is built, the Parthenon becomes the state bank of Athens anyway. So in that sense, there is an analogy between a politician in, in Athens standing for office and Trump, extremely rich, but pretending to be or claiming to be or genuinely being a Democrat and there is a distinction to be drawn there. Pericles was extremely rich, uh, extremely well-born from a very political family, and uh, as it were, the Kennedys of um, uh, Athens. And yet he seems to have been a genuine ideological Democrat. In other words, reducing all those factors that made him superior or different from ordinary Athenians as we're cutting them out and saying, I'm identifying with all of you, and I believe in our system of mass democracy. trump uh, He's not the Pericles of 21st century America, is he? Tell me he's not. (laughs) He's not the Pericles. Now, there is an invented character in one of Aristophanes' plays, and he's um, called The Sausage Seller. And the play is a satire on contemporary Athenian politics, and it includes the most influential then politician, whom Aristophanes either personally really didn't like or at any rate wants to represent in a caricaturally bad way. And this guy's called Cleon. So he's rich. He's not an aristocrat, and he's not an intellectual. He's smart. And what Aristophanes does is he produces a play in which various politicians are represented as slaves of Demos, Demos being the Athenian people. And what they do is they try to outbid each other by doing favours for Demos, so they grovel. But all of them, the slaves of Demos, they're all outwitted by a guy who's even lower
6: than they are.
1: And he's called the sausage seller because that's a low type of huckster making a living by selling sausages in the Agora and so on. Well, Trump has certain, I think, features in common with Aristophanes' sausage seller. And partly it's because he's so rich that he can you know money's no object, mass media absolutely saturated and so on. And he is a kind of populist, and that is I feel like is to me the downside of democracy and where I have some sympathy with the critics from the word go, that it can be a form of decision making by ill-informed, emotion driven people. And populist comes from the Latin of course, not from the so we get demotic from the Greek, and I'm quite in favour of that populism we get from the latin and i'm not so in favor of that
0: what happened to the sausage seller in the end does it have a happy ending i hope not
1: it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> No, he he loses out they all lose out in the end they all come a cropper thank you to paul Cartledge. democracy a life
0: is published by oxford university press now back to our panel helen between the last discussion and this one, we were talking off mic, because we do do that occasionally, and you gave me an answer that I've said, actually, you should say that into the mic, which is what happens next, because you said what comes after democracy historically, and this relates to what we've just been talking to Paul Cutledge about, is what
2: is Caesarism, and what I mean by that is, is that you have somebody from within the established political um, class who fights his battles with the rest of the political class by mobilising the discontent. That's essentially what, in a very crude fashion, Caesar was doing at the end of the Roman Republic, and you get a kind of fight back, a temporary fight back from the forces in that case of the. Roman Republic rather than democracy but clear similarities that was still in the end won by the new representatives of the force of Caesarism Caesar's stepson or adopted son I should say Augustus and Rome moves over into a form of government in which it's led by one man but it maintains the appearance the veneer the old institutions remain in place and I think that it is possible to see looking sometime into the future not what's going to happen in the next few years or even the next 10 years is that that is where we're heading.
0: So on that cheery note, we're going to talk about something that is a little bit more parochial. It's come up this week in the UK context, but it's also a very, very broad theme of contemporary democratic politics and some of its um, anxieties and discontents. British politicians, British political leaders seem to have been forced into a place that they're uncomfortable with, but there doesn't seem to be any going back, which is they've started publishing their tax returns. The Panama Papers and the controversy that that embroiled David Cameron in because of his father's tax affairs, and then his family's tax affairs, and then his own tax affairs have now led to the publication of the tax returns. Boris Johnson was this morning, we've had Corbyn. Corbyns and Johnsons are very different. Uh, we were reading them in my household over the breakfast table this morning. And what Boris Johnson gets paid by the Daily Telegraph is something to behold. This is the age of transparency from Barr. Where's this all going to end? I mean, you can see why it's happened. But I also share some of the anxieties of the politicians, which is this is a slippery slope. I mean, what? when's the public going to be satisfied that they know enough about the financial, personal financial affairs of politicians to be confident that nothing dodgy is going on? All the evidence of the, the digital age is that the more you give people, the more they want to know and the more they suspect that something's being hidden.
5: I'm torn in two directions, actually, because part of me says that this level of transparency drives some people out of potentially ever wanting to be in public life. And it unearths things that are just not important and don't need to be in the public sphere. At the same time, I do feel that there is a level to which it allows us to have some understanding of the divergence between people on the street, as it were, and those who are driving the process. And as Helen was saying earlier, managing to profit from democracy as a project. Um, there are countries which do have openness on tax returns. You can go in and you can search. Um, is it Norway? um where you can go online you can search anybody's tax return um that has been in place for a number of years interestingly there's now been a proposal and i think it's been passed that the minute you search the person you searched on gets notified that they were searched as well and there's been a chilling effect on the use of that however in the time that it's been in place those kinds of negative impacts that you're speaking about haven't come to pass there hasn't been massive calls for wage inflation, there haven't been massive disclosures, there haven't been massive scandals. It's just become a fact of life that you can see what people's personal interests and their financial interests are. And if it goes into that space, I probably would end up being positive towards it. However, I'm less sure that the culture of British tabloid press allows us to go there easily.
0: Chris, are you confident that the more information that we discover about the personal financial arrangements of our politicians, the more trust will have in them? I mean, Is it is it going to help?
3: At this stage, it's better than the alternatives. This is one of these situations where there could have been a serious argument about this kind of thing over the last decade or so, and that never happened. The Conservatives were keen for there not to be a serious conversation about it, and now the genie is out of the bottle. And the dams have been breached, and whatever other metaphors you want to use, and this is how it's going to be. The formal rules aren't going to change, but the politicians will publish their tax returns or publish significantly documents that aren't actually their tax returns, but kind of sort of look like their tax returns. I saw the point made that actually tax officials aren't allowed to insinuate that what's being published aren't in fact the numbers that are being submitted to the tax man. HMRC is not allowed to do that. So it is a funny system where we're not quite sure about the quality of the information we're getting, and that does raise questions about what's being hidden and, in fact, what assets do people have. But I think it's one of these situations where the politicians collectively chose not to fix the problem and introduce a stable, coherent, sensible, deliberated regime when they had the chance and so they lost their chance. So I think, I hope that the consequences will be generally good. I'm in favour of the transparency. Some of the worries that people express, I'm a bit sympathetic to them, sort of in the abstract. But I think the politicians had their chance, and they blew it. And now they've got to live with the consequences. And some of them won't like
4: it. But I think that's
0: their fault. Aaron, one of my favourite recent novels is The Circle by Dave Eggers. I don't know if you've read it.
4: I cannot read, actually. That's something I've been wanting to admit on this podcast for quite some time. Well, so
0: let me me tell you what happens in that novel. (laughs) One of the things that happens in it, it's a vision of a world in which basically we're all ruled by Google is that the transparency agenda takes off to such an extent that politicians start to say, to prove to you I've got nothing to hide, I'm going to wear a camera around my neck 24-7, and you're going to see everything I do, everything I say, everyone I speak to, every interaction I have, so that you can be sure I've got nothing to hide. And the first politician that does that, all the other politicians say, well, that's insane, until the public says, what have you got to hide? The camera's now available. If you choose not to wear the camera, it must be, because, and on it goes. Now, it's a... It's both a satire and a kind of dystopia, but it's not a million miles away from a world that we're approaching, which is that transparency means that politicians have to let us know about everything. At that point, democracy doesn't work,
4: right? Uh, first off, are you sure that's not Gary Hart's autobiography that you were just describing? for? People who don't know, Gary Hart was running for president and he told the press to follow him around because he had nothing to hide and they caught him in an extramarital affair. But, uh, you know... Uh, so this is to a certain extent, it has always been with us. I accept that. that but the technology does yeah, make it easier now. C- certainly, certainly. Here's, you know, the problem with transparency and the problem with not allowing politicians to have a backstage, so to speak, yeah. is if the public can follow your every move. At the end of the day, right you're maybe in, in some ways even less genuine, right? Because you're aware that the body politic is, is following your every move. And so you, that alters your behavior, right? It's like the social science Heisenberg principle. You can't measure something without altering the behavior of that entity. And so that's one possible drawback. The other possible drawback was they did this kind of natural experiment where in, in the United States, f- Federal Reserve meetings used to be totally non-transparent. Nobody knew what was going on there. And people were already kind of suspicious of the Federal Reserve because, uh, you know. it's at the heart of the global conspiracy to enslave the poor. Yeah. That's precisely correct. And then they started actually taping these meetings. And what happened was people started to become much more conventional and homogeneous in their opinions. right? Because if you say something creative that's outside the box that turns out to be wrong, that falls on you. If you say something milk toast that's within the conventional wisdom that turns out to be wrong. Well, you diffuse that responsibility to everybody else. So you end up kind of suppressing opinions uh, that could be valuable, but are risky to voice. And as a result, you get kind of a less imaginative policymaking environment. So in the
0: spirit of the age of transparency, and also to test whether people are willing to voice risky opinions, or we're all just going to cleave to the likely outcome because everyone else thinks it's likely I'm going to ask you to predict what's going to happen in those things that we've been talking about for more than three months on the assumption that some of this would be settled by now and almost none of it has been settled. Three questions or maybe four Who's going to be the Republican nominee? Who's going to be the Democratic nominee? Who's going to be the next president of the United States? Is Britain going to vote to leave the European Union? You don't have to answer all of them, but you've got to answer at least one of them, I think. Um, And yeah, you can hedge or you can go out on a limb. I don't know. Who wants to start? This is like being at school. Helen, who's going to be the Republican nominee?
2: I'm not going to put a prediction on who is going to be the nominee, but I will say that I don't think that Trump will be the nominee. And I think it's at least unlikely or quite possible anyway that Cruz won't be the nominee either for this reason in that I think that the behavior of the the upper echelons of the Republican Party over the last month or so suggests that they are up for a very serious fight at the convention to try to stop certainly Trump having the nomination and quite probably Cruz having the nomination either and that their intention is to try to find somebody. Paul Ryan might be a possibility to have the nomination instead now I think that would be a suicidal thing for them to do but I don't think that that is actually going to stop them because I think that not having one of these people particularly having Trump as the nominee is their first consideration beyond all others including Hillary Clinton ending up in the White House.
0: Does anyone apart from me think that Trump is going to be the nominee?
4: I'm going to say uh, Cruz will be the nominee and I just came up with that off the top of my head. Um, uh, (laughs) But
0: if you're right it'll be a I also said
4: Villanova was going to win the NCAA tournament and I was right about that. (laughs) So uh, clearly that correlates highly with this opinion. No, what's going to happen is what's been shown is that uh, Trump is not very good at the so-called ground game. He doesn't do well in caucus states. Recently, he's been doing very poorly at making sure delegates who are actual Trump supporters are the ones who are getting slotted in, getting credentialed to actually appear at the national convention. He's not actually that good of a politician. He's good at campaigning, but he's not good at the kind of machinery of it. Cruz, on the other hand, even though he's not well-liked, I think is a very smart guy who is kind of good at that. And so what's going to happen, I think, is you'll get to the convention. Trump will have the plurality of pledged delegates, but not the majority. He won't win on the first ballot. And at this point, Cruz, who actually kind of knows what he's doing and has shown that he does have something of a ground game, will be the one best positioned to wrangle delegates into a kind of formation by which they would support him. And that would be much safer for the Republican Party. It wouldn't be blowing up the village to save it. It'd be much safer to have somebody who was actually running for the presidency in the primary system, unlike a Paul Ryan or a Mitt Romney to come away with the nomination. And you also have historical precedents of people coming into contested conventions who were not the leading candidate emerging with the nomination. That said, then, Cruz gets absolutely slaughtered in the general election and there is much rejoicing about the land. We'll come
0: on to the general election in a second. The reason I think that Trump still going to be the nominee is just because the betting markets have as a 50% chance. So I'm just hedging my bets. But also, his poll numbers have held up surprisingly well nationally, and also in New York and Pennsylvania, given he has had the worst two to three weeks of any presidential candidate in the history of American politics, just about. So I still think he's semi impervious. Having said all of that, does anyone think that anyone other than Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States?
2: I think that it's not out of the question for someone other than Hillary Clinton to be the next president of the United States, but this really turns on what the FBI and the Justice Department are going to do. That's why I will be nervous to get into a prediction about what actually will happen, because whatever expertise that any of us have, it's not about what investigative agencies and those who make decisions about whether to prosecute do, but... This is unprecedented territory for the leading candidate of one of the parties to be in this position so close to a convention. And I still think that as the issue is not resolved, we have to say that it is a possibility that Hillary Clinton will not be able to be the Democrat nominee.
0: Chris, do you want to make any predictions about American politics or shall I just go straight to you on the EU? Do you want to say whether we're going to stay or leave?
3: I think we're going to stay. From time to time, there are opinion polls that suggest that there might be a vote for leave. But the weight of the opinion polling suggests that people are going to vote for Remain. The numbers aren't changing much. Every time there's a story in the papers and people talk about what impact it will have on the referendum, and then the poll numbers don't change, the betting odds don't change, nothing changes. There's this mismatch between the excitement that the pundits are trying to whip up and the underlying numbers that we can seem to pull out of what's going on. The conventional wisdom is that there's a between a two-thirds and a three-quarters chance of the population voting Remain, and I think that sounds plausible to me. The big unknown is about turnout, and you know what we know from the general election is that older people are much more likely to turn out to vote than younger people, and the numbers suggest that older people are more likely to vote go than younger people. But nevertheless, things seem to be pointing towards a victory for Remain. Looking past the referendum, I just wonder whether nothing will really be resolved in the way that people hope it will be, just as the fallout from the Scottish referendum has been transformative of Scottish politics. I my hunch is that although David Cameron held the referendum in order to try to lance the boil of Conservative Euroscepticism, nothing will actually change. The Conservative Party will still be unmanageable on this issue. The UKIP will still be there. The Labour base will continue to be split on the issue. It'll continue to be a fault line that runs across both political parties in ways that will make British politics a pretty haphazard place for the foreseeable future. But I don't expect. The British government to be beginning negotiations for exit in the summer does anyone think that we're going
0: to leave my own feeling is that we're probably going to vote to remain but this does feel different from the Scottish referendum I never believed for a minute even when the polls showed independence ahead I never you, you trust your gut on these things I never felt that there was a chance that the Scots were going to vote to leave the UK whereas this one just seems to me it feels completely different it's completely possible that we could and it does depend on these factors like turnout and other things. And the polling is very hard to read. So this does seem to me to be completely up in the air at the moment. But does anyone have a, want to come out and you might as well say it, because then if you're right, people will remember. And if you're wrong, they want to remember that. Does anyone want to come out and say we're going to vote to leave?
2: I don't think we're definitely going to vote to leave, but I think it's quite possible that we're going to vote for leave. I also think it's quite possible we're going to vote for the state. I think that this is something that's sort of in the 48, 52 parameters and those could go either way. I mean, we are having this referendum in really quite exceptionally volatile political circumstances in which we can see that there are is considerable general political discontent, as we were talking about earlier, and a fairly significant amount of Euroscepticism around. It. You can see it in the Dutch referendum result um, last week. And that there will be people who want to vote to leave the U- European Union simply to express the general discontent that, that they feel. Now, how many of these people are there are and how significant they will be in the final instance that we don't know, but this is a lot harder question to think about for people than the Scottish referendum was. And in that sense, the harder it is to think about as a practical problem, the more emotion that's going to get expressed in that referendum.
0: Aaron, do you have a strong sense of this as someone who's, who's not a citizen? Does this look like something that is really volatile and up in the air, or is it going to conform to the general referendum pattern, which is, in the end... People are scared of changing the status quo, and they come back into line.
4: I'm very much of the latter position. My recollection of the polling that was done before the Scottish referendum was that you saw a surprisingly rapid narrowing of the gap between independence versus staying within the union, but then the final vote was actually farther apart than the polls were showing. And it can feel very good, right, to tell a pollster, yeah, I'm taking the brave chance and feel good to stick it to the English or whatever. And we're we're out of here. Stick it to the eurocrats. Stick it to the eurocrats. Same same thing. But you know, psychologists, as, as you've pointed out, have shown that there is a bias, whether you call it the endowment effect or the status quo bias. So when push comes to shove, or the moment of truth arrives, it's much harder to actually vote for a significant change like that. Now, the exception to that, again, I think would be as if you could make it seem very risky to stay. So you know, Sir Richard Dearlove has said that you know, uh, on the whole. EU membership is a net negative for British security. And so if there was, heaven forbid, some sort of major attack on British soil and somehow accurately or inaccurately it was attributed to EU membership and lack of border control or so on and so forth, that could really change things. So it, it could be event driven, but uh, unless there's some major, you know, kind of n- negative nasty attack, my guess is stay. And by having said I'd come to you first, here I am
0: coming to you last. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, your take. Any chance that we're going to leave? Yes. Significant Um, chance?
5: Yes. Put a number on it. um, Put a percentage on it. Well, the percentage I'll throw at you is roughly one-fifth of the UK are undecided. They haven't made up their mind yet. And I think this, for me, comes down to not a discussion about whether or not it's better or worse to be within the European Union, whether or not people are managing to do a cost-benefit analysis on the back of their napkins, I think it actually comes down to how pissed off they are and what happens in the last two weeks before the referendum. If the Panama Papers, if a potential attack, as Aaron was saying, if there's more heat in the political system, something random that isn't attached at all to the European Union and whether it's good or bad, turns up, I think it's quite likely that late deciders could break towards leave depending on whether or not there's another financial scandal, depending on whether or not we get another personal scandal for somebody senior within the government. I think it has come down to this. I think we have a clear block of people who have decided to stay, a clear block of people who have decided to go, as Helen was saying in the 4852. I think it's going to be decided by the events just before the referendum, not on the content of the referendum itself. Thank you to Helen,
0: Aaron, Finbar and Chris, to Paul Cartledge, and all our guests, To all our reporters and contributors, and a big thank you to Catherine Carr. When we started out, we didn't know when the EU referendum was going to happen. June, July, September, we really weren't sure. And we assumed that the US presidential nomination process would be more or less concluded by now and we would know who the nominees were going to be. And we were wrong. If nothing else, it shows just how difficult it is to make predictions about democratic politics. So we don't want to leave everything hanging. There won't be any more regular weekly episodes from this point in, but as things develop, we will reconvene the panel and let you have their take on the results. If you've enjoyed this series and you wanna be sure you receive these extra episodes, do please subscribe on iTunes or keep visiting our website at policeelectionpodcast. Podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, we'll let you know soon what we're planning next. Until then, My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast, Election.